0: Hello and welcome to this week's show. In last week's show, I told you a little bit about a format change that I was implementing and how I was shifting the focus of the show from entertainment to an educational design. I will still have occasional stories and I will also have special shows about off-topic items such as paranormal phenomenon just to demonstrate to you that all these topics are connected and relative to each other. I also uh, told you about the single most valuable lesson that anyone can learn to help them advance physically, mentally, and spiritually, is that of consciousness, exploration, and manipulation, using the tools of perception and awareness. These are the most powerful tools a shaman can wield. They are the very keys of the kingdom that will open the doorways and portals to realms and forces beyond your imaginations this is a very personal journey and involves no one but yourself there will be no pop quizzes no tests and no final grades because no one has a right to judge or measure the quality or quantity of your being but you at the end of a life cycle in the physical realm you will reflect and analyze your actions and accomplishments on levels of association that you cannot even conceive with the limited perceptions of an incarnated being. You will do this with the intent of perfection and you will not be judged not even by yourself. You will simply learn and evolve. This is why our relationship with any deity of your choice, be it from a traditional religion, uh, science or none at all, is a very personal one and requires no outside assistance. Your conception of deity is part of you and will not judge you as a separate entity. You are your only judge. Now, I don't know about you, but this is getting a little bit too heavy for me, so so let's get into the show and get this started. In my last show, I told you about the most influential person in my life, my friend and teacher, Dr. Carlos Castaneda. I was lucky enough to have one of the only recorded interviews with Carlos that I shared with you at that time. In tonight's show, I am going to introduce you to the second most influential person in my life, Robert Monroe of the Monroe Institute. I have for you a presentation that Bob did several years ago regarding his life and the technology he pioneered called HemiSync. This technology is going to be one of the most powerful teaching tools that I will be using with those who wish to become my students. Together, we will be working with the tools from the Monroe Institute as well as those that I acquired in my apprenticeship with uh, Carlos Castaneda. I am a private researcher for the Monroe Institute, and my field of Research uh, specializes in the manipulation of the assemblage point of awareness using the tools of the HemiSync technology. Through this method of teaching you will reach levels of adeptness that normally take shamans years to reach in only a matter of months. Before I share this presentation with you I should point out that for liability reasons I removed the stereo recording segment of the HemiSync demonstration that Bob offers, because HemiSync is so powerful that it could affect the awareness of those listening to the show while driving a car or some other form of uh, vehicle. So instead of asking you to pull over to the side of the road until the segment is complete, I simply turn the sample from stereo into mono, which will uh, still give you an idea what HemiSync is like without shifting your awareness you will have a chance to hear the stereo version in the near future. So with that, I would now like to introduce you to one of the most remarkable persons in the scientific history of the pursuit of consciousness, Robert Monroe.
1: The old story has it that as we go through life, we really don't change. We just become more of the same. You look around you as the years go by, and it seems a very valid premise. People don't change. As a matter of fact, most of us resist change very strongly. Yet change is a sure thing. The only variable is rate. Slow we read as evolution, and fast as revolution. All of this is one way to introduce the change that occurred in my life some 30 years ago. It definitely was not more of the same. It was something I didn't worry about for a very simple reason. I didn't know it existed. There is still some discussion as to whether it was accidental or evolutionary in my case. Certainly it was revolutionary for me. Now, after many years of living with the change and exploring it, the very least I can be sure of is it didn't harm me. The most I can say is I don't know of any other facet of human existence that can produce such a broad scope of knowledge and experience. Yet it remains relatively ignored in our present cultural context. What is it? I'm sure you already know. We call it the out of body state. Back in 1958, when it first began to happen to me, it was called astral projection. The label felt uncomfortable to a psychologist friend and to me too. It seemed too occult, too 16th century. So we began to call it the out of body experience, or OBE. It fit better in the double speak of the late 20th century. No respectable researcher or scientist would be caught fooling around with astral projection, but just maybe out of body might slip through. Also, it was graphic and to the point. The out-of-body is a state of consciousness where you are distinct and separate from your physical body. This separateness can be 2 inches or 2,000 miles or more. You can think, act, and perceive in this state much as you do physically with several important exceptions. With a little practice, your five senses can be replicated while in the OB. Replication is the right description because you're not using sensory mechanisms and organs as you do physically. What you're actually using is instead something no one that I know of has taken the trouble to find out. In my own history, I began to see, first of all. and I don't know how precisely I started to do that in the out-of-body state. After considerable experimentation, I learned to hear and then to feel. I've never learned how to smell or taste while in the O.B. state. No particular reason for this except that the need to do so never came up. Why would anyone want to go out of their body? Well, I didn't have much choice. All I wanted to do was to keep it from happening at first. Then, when I slowly learned the potentials involved, I became excited and went to work at learning how to control this activity. If all of this sounds wild, weird, or nonsense, you're just about where I was 30 years ago, and I don't blame you. If someone had told me then that I would be talking with you now about such things, I would have snorted in disgust and disbelief, and I would have recommended that he see a psychiatrist. But this is now, and some of my best friends are psychiatrists, but uh, not in a doctor-patient relationship. Today, there are over 120 consultants and associates, ranging from MDs, psychologists, college professors, physicists and scientists, to engineers and corporate executives. All actively involved in the research and educational organization we call the Monroe Institute each has a personal or professional interest in the out-of-body state the Institute is internationally known for its studies in human consciousness and the use of sound wave patterns to assist changes in states of being one of these of course is the out-of-body state evidence of change recent research not ours it's shown that 25% of our nation's population remembers having at least one spontaneous out-of-body experience. If you think about it, perhaps you'll find your part of that 25%. The very fact that you're listening now indicates a, at least a casual interest or a, perhaps a search for answers. Many such out-of-bodies have been attached to the sleep state and dismissed as simply dreams, except that they didn't fit the hazy quality of dreams. They were much too vivid and real to be so classified. Other spontaneous OBs have occurred under anesthesia during surgery, where the patient found himself some six or eight feet above the operating table and later reported what he saw and heard from this vantage point, which would have been a physical impossibility. These are happening every day. They're unreported for the most part. Others occur during moments of unconsciousness caused by an accident or something like that. Most are relegated to an odd event and tucked away in memory as an anomaly but never happened. Our belief systems wouldn't let it be otherwise. Again, in my own case, it took a full year of spontaneous and willful out-of-body excursions with growing validation and documentations before I accepted the reality of it. The most profound of the spontaneous out-of-bodies is what is now called the near-death experience. Again, these are taking place daily, usually during surgery and under anesthesia. More and more are being reported due to the efforts and publicity by several organizations that have sprung up to investigate this phenomenon. Most near-death out-of-body experiences have the effect of changing completely the belief systems of the patient and thus their lives. They come back knowing they are more than their physical body, and without any equivocation they will survive physical death. You can understand what I mean by profound if you'll think about how such knowledge, not belief or hope or faith, would affect your life, that you are indeed more than your physical body, that you do indeed survive physical death. Think about just knowing that, just those two, as knowns, with absolutely no conditions or complication. Human history is full of such references to what we would call out-of-body. You're beside yourself, out of your mind, fall asleep and wake up, pass out, and it goes on and on. Even to witches who wrote a broomstick, myth or misconception. Every era has its own interpretation, and it's a lot of smoke to be without a fire. In our own effort over these many years, the Monroe Institute research projects have taken it the hard way. We have not used drugs or anesthesia or any other body-invasive techniques, yet we have been able to induce and train subjects to achieve OBs in a constant and objective manner. It doesn't take place overnight. Some learn the process in a month. Others have taken several years. Also, we have taught many spontaneous OBers to learn conscious control, Later in this program, we'll give you a demonstration of some of the techniques that we use. It won't get you out of your body, but you may get the feel of being different. You'll need stereo headphones to do this, so have a set ready if you want to try it out. We've learned much from the testing and experimentation we've done. Now we take the position that everyone moves out of their body during delta or deep sleep. The fact that you don't remember it, except possibly as dreaming, is perhaps no more than a rejection or censorship by your belief system. In the beginning of -of out-of-body activity, you retain the form of your physical body, head, shoulders, chest, arms, legs, and so on. If you have any internal actions, such as replicated blood flow and heart, I've never been aware of it. However, again, in my own history, the more one becomes familiar with and uses this other state of being, you become less and less humanoid in form and shape. It's sort of like a gelatin taken out of a mold. For a while, it retains the shape of the mold. Then as it warms up, it becomes soft around the edges, and finally it becomes a liquid or a glob or, say, a more convenient form, such as a teardrop, which is my favorite. Of course, you can reconstitute yourself back into your physical human shape just by thinking about it. This second body is extremely plastic. You can make it into any shape you want. You can stretch it like an incredible rubber band, release it, and it'll snap back into a central mass. So you have a tendency to fold up or melt arms and legs into the mass until you, say, need them. It's just like a jetliner does it with flaps and landing gear. You can always form new ones and do it in an instant if the need arises. However, it's important to remember that whatever the shape, you, remain you. Uh, This second non-physical body seems to have little or no mass as we know it. In a completely physical environment gravity does have a slight and perceivable effect on it. Also there seems to be some relationship to electrical fields as it is attracted to them. On the other hand physical matter such as chairs or a steel wall is much like a cloud you can pass through easily. And if you do so slowly enough, you can actually feel and identify the texture of the material as you go. Finally, as to where you go and what you do, there seems to be no limitation. If there is, we haven't found it. In an out-of-body state, you are no longer bound by time and space. You're not part of it. Your normal, non-physical state is another reality system. Thus you feel you're just a temporary visitor working your way through a dull gray cloud. And it's much more fun and clean to be up in the sunlight. You have a great sense of freedom, yet you're not. You're like a balloon or a kite on a tether. At the other end of the cord is your physical body. How do you learn to go out of your body? At this point, I cannot tell you of a quick, instant way to willfully achieve the out-of-body state. Uh, Well, I can, but they're too permanent. I'm sure you can, too, such as driving your car over a thousand-foot cliff. But you're not ready for that, I'm sure. However, there are methods and techniques to slowly and carefully learn the out-of-body process and how to control it. I'm sure those we've developed are but a few of many. We do know it takes time and effort, a commitment on the part of the individual, just as rigid and consistent as that required by any other major human endeavor the greatest problem lies in the adjustment in your personal belief system and your fear barrier getting past these is no easy matter perhaps it will help if I get a little bit more personal perhaps you can understand a little better Back in 1958, without any seeming cause, I began to float out of my physical body. It was not during sleep, so I couldn't label it as simply a dream. I had full conscious awareness of what was happening, which of course only made it worse. That meant to me some form of severe hallucination caused by something dangerous, a brain tumor or a stroke or some mental illness. At the time, I was in reasonably good health, had no major problems or stress, just an ordinary guy doing ordinary things. I owned several radio stations, had offices on Madison Avenue in New York, a home in Westchester County, and not the least, a wife and two small children. I was taking no medication, used no drugs, and drank very little alcohol. I was not particularly involved in any religious activity, nor was I a deep student of philosophies and Eastern disciplines. The point of all this is to show how completely unprepared I was for such a Radical change. Perhaps the best way to convey what is meant by the out-of-body experience is to describe that first time it happened to me. For some weeks I had encountered a strange sense of vibration, which I felt when I lay down for a nap or for a night's sleep. It didn't take place every time, but often enough to give me concern. When I felt the vibration begin, my body became paralyzed, and I couldn't move, and it took tremendous effort to sit up and when I did, the vibrations faded away. I went to my doctor about it, and after an examination, he couldn't find any reason for it, and he sent me home with some pills to help me relax more. Like most of us, I didn't take them regularly. I either forgot about it, or they made me too dopey or sleepy. Finally, I stopped fighting the sensation, saying to myself, if it's going to kill me, let it happen, let's get it over with. So the next time when I lay down and the vibration surged into me I just lay there and waited for something to happen. It was an anticlimax when nothing did. The sensation simply faded away after about five minutes. After that I simply waited for the vibrations to get through their cycle and then I would go to sleep. I stopped worrying about it. They were like hiccups. You don't concentrate on them and they go away. Then on a Friday night I went to bed early so I would be fresh on the Saturday. I was to leave early in the morning to go over to a place called Wurtzboro in New York to fly gliders or, to be more exact, sailplanes. A cold front had come through which meant there would be strong northwest winds and a clear day, and that meant good soaring on thermals. When I got into bed and settled down the vibrations came and I began to wait them out so I could go to sleep. As I was lying there, I thought how nice it was going to be the next day, soaring, soaring, and how good it would feel when a strong thermal lifted you upward smoothly and easily, and I just lay there thinking about all these wonderful gliding prospects. After a few moments of such contemplation, I felt a bump against my shoulder, and I turned and looked and I found my shoulder bouncing against the floor. My first thought was that I had fallen asleep and rolled out of bed. Then I suddenly realized that it couldn't be the floor because there was a rug on the bedroom floor. Also, not far from me was what looked to be a fountain sticking up out of the floor. This is certainly a strange dream, I thought, and then I noticed that there was something familiar about the fountain. It wasn't a fountain. It was a light fixture, a chandelier, and if it was a chandelier, I was upside down, And if I rolled over I might see what this was all about and so I did and sure enough there was our bed down below me and there was my wife lying in bed asleep and there was someone in the bed with her also asleep I remember wondering with amusement whom would I dream to be in bed with my wife and then I focused on the man's head and that's when the shock hit me it was my face I was in bed with my wife, and what was I doing up against the ceiling? I was absolutely sure of the answer. I was dying. This is what it was to die, and I didn't want to die. I panicked, and in frantic terror, I swam and clawed my way through the air back to the bed and my body, and somehow snapped back inside. I sat up in bed and in the dim light looked up at the ceiling and the chandelier and slowly calmed down as best I could. The vibrations didn't come back for the rest of the night, and, nor did any sleep. In the morning, I didn't go gliding. I did what I'm sure you would have done. I made my doctor friend see me on an emergency basis. He immediately recognized the seriousness of my anxiety. He even recommended hospitalization. But he couldn't find anything physically wrong with me, so he gave me some more pills, and I went home. This time, I took the pills. After several more times floating over the bed, totally uncontrolled, pills or no pills, I went back to my doctor for help. I was deeply worried or deeply frightened. I was so sure of two things, one, that I wasn't the psychotic type, and two, that our body of science, including medicine, had the answers for everything, maybe not the cure, but at least a good, solid opinion. It had to be something physical that was causing the hallucination, like a brain tumor. My doctor friend saw immediately the depth of my fear and put me through a complete and extensive exam, the whole thing, blood tests, fluoroscopes, x-rays, the works. The results were negative, much to his surprise and, well, same surprise to me. He finally sent me home with another set of pills and to call him if the thing persisted. As for me, I was tremendously disappointed. I was sure there would be a reasonable answer. Or a good opinion based on previous scientific research or studies but there was none no recognized and acceptable authority on the subject the only recommendation I received was five to ten years of psychotherapy more those I talked to were not even particularly curious polite but that's about all Western civilization in which I was an active participant and believer had let me down was a very lonely moment. After about the 10th OB experience without any effects other than my own terror and fright, I suddenly realized the obvious. It wasn't going to kill me. The thing itself actually was not going to kill me. And whatever else, I just might not be hallucinating because, like the chandelier from the ceiling perspective, I was getting small bits of verification that were useful only to me. From that moment on, I stopped being afraid of going out of the body. That's not to say I didn't later encounter some very fearsome situations. I did. But after that, it was a simple need to get the thing under control, to somehow first to learn to stop it when I wanted to, and then to learn how to start it if I felt like it. I began taking careful notes, attempting to be as objective as I possibly could. The record-keeping might help me review what was happening. Also, to gather information and help in some form of testing, we set up a research and development division in a corporation privately owned by me and my family. This eventually became the Monroe Institute. So that there can be no misconception, all of this organized effort and expenditure was not aimed at the betterment of humankind. It was not set up to prove to the scientific community and the world at large that there truly was such a phenomenon as the out-of-body experience. Thus, no academic papers of our work appeared in any scientific journals. Orthodox scientific methods were followed whenever feasible, but not in an orderly manner. Until 1971, the whole process operated very quietly, if not exactly covertly. After all, I was the head of a very conventional business and dealing with conventional people. I was sure any public revelation of my secret life activity would bring an adverse effect upon my ability to conduct such businesses. In retrospect, I still believed it was good reasoning. Thus, the original purpose was solely to solve my own personal and urgent needs, to learn how to control and understand what was happening to me. I was the one who needed help, so the motive to learn and investigate was personal and selfish, not profound or idealistic or noble. I offer no apology for this simply because I was the one who was paying the bills. I will admit to one thing. Once the fear was gone, it was replaced by something equally demanding. I got curious and a little less lonely. The adventures of those early days and the incidents and activities that took place back then appear in detail in my book, Journeys Out of the Body, which was first published in 1971 by Doubleday and is still in print in the bookstores. In the out-of-body booklet which you receive with this tape, there are some additional excerpts from those early years of learning that may be of interest to you. I think that perhaps I ought to acquaint you with our position as to reporting of my out-of-body activities and other events, as well as our related research. We attempt to tell it like it is. We try to strip away any myths, religious beliefs, conventional ethics, morality, and other factors that might distort the picture. We try to begin with a clean slate, as it were. By doing so, we hope to uncover new views on old ideas that make sense to the late 20th century Western mind. Above all, we don't place value judgments on any event or information. So far, it seems to work, sometimes not easily because physical imprints die hard. An early item of interest might be one of the first major evidential trips I made and a peculiar part that almost went unnoticed. A psychologist's friend, Foster Bradshaw, who lived several miles away, began to work with us as a consultant, and we had a standing agreement that whenever I felt like it, I should try to reach him during an out-of-body state. One weekend, I called to find Brad sick in bed with a cold, and after hanging up the phone, I decided it would be an ideal time to try it. I knew where he was, and I knew the direction of his house so he should be an easy target. That afternoon I finally was able to roll out of my body and lift up through the roof of my one-room cabin office and head over the treetops to Brad's house. I finally got there and I went through the wall into his bedroom and to my surprise he wasn't in bed and nor was he in the bathroom. I went back outside out through the wall to be sure I had the right room. When I went out behind the house, I saw his wife coming out the back door, followed by Brad, and then they headed for the garage. I tried to get his wife's attention without success, and then I turned to Brad and tried to get his attention, and after much gyrating in the air in front of him as he walked, he responded with, "'Well, I see you made it.' Greatly satisfied and excited, I returned back to the body and wrote down what I had seen and heard." and the real clock time checking in that night with Brad he told me that he indeed was not in his bed at that time he had gotten bored and had decided to go with his wife to the post office they were walking across the back lawn at exactly the time I had indicated my description of their clothing matched perfectly but Brad did not remember talking with me the strange part of the event On my way to visit Brad in the out-of-body state, I suddenly felt I didn't have enough energy to make it and began to sag downward into the trees. At that moment, someone helped me. I felt a hand under each elbow lifting me up in the direction of Brad's house. When I got there, the hands released me and left. Who were these helpers? I still am not sure. Another incident comes to mind from back in the early days. Just as I was getting comfortable with a technique I had learned to induce the out-of-body state, an interesting lesson came about. I guess that's what you would call it. It was afternoon, and I lay down in the cot in my cabin office and started to use this separation process. I just was able to roll out of the physical when I felt someone grabbing me from behind, and I could feel this strange body plastered against my back and a head poked over my shoulder and the lips and the head were next to my ear and there was a loud and deep panting right in my ear i could hear it very loudly i immediately reacted some monster was trying to take over and get into my body i turned and slipped back into the physical as fast as i could i sat up and looked around and there was nothing unusual everything was the same and no sign of the monster I tried the technique a second time and as soon as I started to move out of the body there was the monster again holding on to my back and panting in my ear I quickly moved back into the physical and called it a day the next morning after three more attempts to get out of body by this method and still finding the monster on my back I got angry Who is this character that thinks he can interfere in my life? So when I rolled out of my body again, and there it was, on my back, groaning, head over my shoulder, I reached back and tried to pull it off. My hand touched the face, and then the chin and the cheek, and they had whiskers. Whiskers, that meant a male, and I didn't like the idea of a male hanging on to me like that. I slipped back in the body and tried to figure out how to get rid of him. As I sat there, breathing heavily from the excitement, I happened to rub my hand across my physical chin. Then it all clicked into place. I heard myself panting and rubbed the whiskers on my chin, sitting there in my physical body. Then I laughed. That's real paranoia, afraid of my own physical body. I checked it out. When I altered the breathing pattern of my physical body just at the point of separation, so did my monster. And finally, to prove the point, I went up into the bathroom, took a very clean shave, then came back, lay down, rolled out of my body slowly and checked. My monster's chin was smooth, and it faded away as I moved further from my physical. So much for my dangerous monster. In those early turbulent days, we finally moved to set up some kind of program that would develop conscious control of the out of body process. If no one really knew anything about it from a causative aspect, we would take the route of investigating what we had first, namely me, and go on from there. We, meaning a friendly psychologist a curious physicist and an indifferent electronics engineer we put together a modest research facility on the land back of my house in Westchester County there was some 30 acres in which to hide it so the distant neighbors never knew it was there as my career had been in sound the production of network radio programs and music principally we started with this base and it was in this lab back in the woods of Westchester that we first began to use sound to affect brainwave patterns in a human, and thus his mental and emotional behavior. We learned that we could help people go to sleep and stay awake, for example. We focused upon the sleep area because the out-of-body state seemed somehow related. We learned what frequencies help to produce specific states of consciousness, and the very many that don't seem to do anything. We called the pattern a frequency following response, or FFR. And what we do today both in education and research in our laboratory is an evolving and sophisticated extrapolation of what began way back then. The fallout from our main effort brought such applications as a drugless means to go into and control sleep, keeping awake, intense focus of attention, accelerated learning of both mental and motor skills, self-acquisition of various levels of individual consciousness, Stress tension reduction, and pain control, to name a few. We call the process Hemisync for hemispheric synchronization, which is a description of the coherent EEG brain pattern evoked by the method. So that you can get the feel of the process, we're going to run a short demonstration of Hemisync sound. It will not get you out of your body or anything remotely near it, but it may give you a feel as to how the technique is applied. You will need stereo headphones to make it effective. If you have a set, put them on now, if you haven't already. Here we go. That you are more relaxed. Here is a demonstration of hemisync sound. First, we change the background sound from ocean surf to pink sound. pink sound is just what you hear, a sound that contains all sound. It is called pink to indicate that the sound volume in the higher and lower ranges has been adjusted to compensate for hearing losses in the typical human ear. We use this basic sound so that the mind has a source to create, so to speak, sounds of its own, whatever they may be. Next, we put a simple clear tone in one ear, like this. If we put the same tone in the other ear, the sound is equal, like this. from one ear and instead use a slightly different sound, different in frequency or vibration. And listen now to the effect. by you in your mind. It is not of itself on the tape, it is a pattern synthesized by the coordination of the right and left hemispheres of your brain. Hemisync, or hemispheric synchronization. are more than your physical body there's certainly nothing new about that the difference is that we are quite sure that anyone can prove this to oneself and possibly to those scientists and others who are deeply embedded in time space studies we're not sure that this is provable to the public at large rather each individual can achieve a stage of knowing in this respect an out-of-body experience is the best means to do so but there are other ways Knowing that you are indeed more than simply a physical being automatically has a great effect on your life, on how you view and approach events and other people. It's a very constructive revelation. Next, your consciousness. What you consider as you is not dependent upon the reception of signal information from your five senses. You can be awake and alert with your body detuned and asleep. This automatically poses the question, what happens when you're unconscious, such as in sleep or a blow to the head or under anesthesia, for example? We take the position that everyone moves temporarily away from the physical body during such periods. The fact that you may not remember it does not mean it doesn't happen. I can't remember what I was doing at 9.30 yesterday morning unless I'm reminded of it in some way. Most of our memory is much the same, with good reason. We have software that provides backup, but are not enough bytes to handle, in immediate form, all of our memory. If you added memory from out-of-body experiences, we may require twice as much room in an area even now on overload status. Dreams may be one reflection of our out-of-body activity. It's as logical an explanation as any other. Then you have the eternal question of survival after physical death. I know of no way of being sure this takes place, not just hope, faith, or belief, other than the out-of-body experience. There may be other ways. I'm simply not aware of them. All of those who become only mildly proficient in the OB or out-of-body state reach a stage of knowing, knowing this is fact. It may be that this knowing is the single and most important basic to be learned from the out-of-body experience. Included in such knowing is that survival takes place whether we like it or not, and without any consideration whatsoever as to what we do or be in physical life. It doesn't make any difference. Survival is very much an automatic process. Again, such knowledge profoundly affects what you do here you have a different overview. Next, as I mentioned earlier, perhaps the greatest barrier to proficiency in the outer body is fear, fear of the unknown, fear of physical death. And the outer body contains both of these. The attachment your consciousness has to the physical environment is very, very great. Virtually all that you think is usually expressed in time-space terms. That's all you've learned. To reduce or translate everything into something understandable here and now and of course that's the problem it simply can't be done the only way we have learned to ease such fears is to move into the out-of-body process one step at a time in slow motion as it were this permits the novice to get accustomed to small changes and to get to know that such changes are not dangerous or life threatening as these changes in consciousness are learned we also help the student continually look back, back to physical awareness, so that there is an ongoing familiar point of reference. Slowly and surely, the basic fears are thus released. Another point of adjustment. The consciousness and awareness present in the outer body is much different from what we have in the physical waking state. The left brain analytical focus is usually not present, but can be called upon willfully when desired or needed. Conversely, the emotional extremes of the right brain symbol also are absent and are usually much more difficult to activate. Feelings of release and freedom, with the joy and exuberance they generate, may be the major emotion that does surface. Ordinary emotions often are missing. Love, in a strict interpretation, is not considered as an emotion in this context. In such consciousness, all of what you are is out in the open, up front, so to speak. There seems to be no subconscious hidden below, affecting what you are, or unaffected by activity. There's always some carryover conditioning from your physical life, which you reject when it gets in the way. Most important, a new element, and a major one, is within the awareness of the out-of-body consciousness. By new, I mean that it's new to what we know of as physical consciousness, or more to the point It is present in the out-of-body state and we know it's there. In physical wakefulness, we believe and hope there is such a part of us. This total self, some like the term soul better, uh, does not necessarily participate in all decision-making and action. Rather, it seems to be more like a matrix or a set of rules you go by and can't conceive of violating. When uncertain, you refer to it and the answer is forthcoming. You may not like the answer, but you know it's the correct one. Obviously, this different out-of-body consciousness takes some getting used to. You keep trying to add things to it from your physical life, and often they are rejected as unworkable. Other times, what you bring from the physical waking state is immediately modified and put into use. It has smarts you didn't even know existed. What's so important about the part of the out-of-body experience that we can understand? Well, for one thing, if you want to prove to yourself and no one else that you will survive physical death, then go into the out-of-body and seek out a friend, a member of your family. Someone close to you who has died recently. You'll have to contact them relatively soon because most of them rapidly lose interest in the life they've just completed. Several such meetings will be enough. You'll have your proof, not for anyone else, but for you. Next, the out-of-body state is an excellent means of gathering information. A minimal example. The five-year-old son of one of our researchers came into my office while his father was working in the lab, and he reported that he did what his daddy and I did. I asked, what was that? And he said, I float. And I asked him what he did when he did float. And he said that, When he was back in his room, he would lie down in the bed and float out the door and float in front of the house and see if any one of his friends were there. If they were, he would float back to his body, get in and go out and play. I thought that was pretty good for a five-year-old. Of course, he didn't think it was strange or unusual at all. One of the easiest information runs you can make is checking on the welfare of a loved one it's also one of the most simple OB targets if you're separated from your spouse or mate because of a business trip for example it's very comforting to go home and be with her and be sure she's all right much more comprehensive than a phone call for example when one of our daughters was away at college I would occasionally drop in on a out-of-body trip as it were to see how she was getting along I made the mistake of telling her because She told me that ever since before she and her girlfriend roommate got ready for bed she would say to the ceiling please daddy I would like you to leave now we have to get undressed. A voyeurism is almost non-existent if it exists at all in the out-of-body state. There's much more exciting action than that. You can go directly to places and observe what is there in great detail and what activity is taking place some out-of-body people can read print such as a book or a letter I have difficulty doing this for some reason my OB seeing is much to my optic. some can perceive temperatures heat or cold but I've been able to do so only rarely with some adjustment perception of other forms of radiation can be achieved meanwhile at your target site you can hover over it move around the area to observe it from various perspectives close up or back some distance you can perceive color if you train for it the big problem of course is that you cannot pick up physical objects your hand goes right through them but there's a plus because you can feel the texture of the objects as your hand passes through them it's all a matter of practice So, after some 30 years of dealing with the out-of-body experiences, here are a few no's I can pass along. First, an out-of-body is not going to kill you, just as I like to report. In and of itself, it cannot be classified as dangerous to your physical health. Mentally and emotionally, no problem if you take it one step at a time. Most of my medical friends agree that I am still operational physically simply because of my OB activities, not in spite of them. Second, such experiences do not lead to withdrawal of interest in physical life. It's not necessary to go live in a cave. Rather, the different overview you develop enhances all that you do and think in this, here and now. You won't get rich in the conventional sense as a result, although there's nothing to stop you from doing so. As to other kinds of wealth, that's something else. I'm sure you now have an idea about such matters. At the very, very least, I now know and understand myself. Add to that a broad-banded participation in human life activity during the 20th century, the age of the fire wagons. Great stuff. At the most, I know where I'm going when I leave here. You can't buy these at your local shopping mall. Or not yet, anyway. Finally, if you're a closet out-of-body neophyte and you don't know what to do and you can't talk about it with family and friends you don't have the problems I found way back then now there's a support system available you can stop worrying one part of that system is our organization and facility in Virginia if you wish write me and tell me about your adventures they may be a valuable addition to a growing body of data and will provide additional help to others. And perhaps in some way we can reassure you your communication will be kept confidential if you so desire. Write me in care of the Monroe Institute, Auburn, Virginia 22938. Well, see you in 12, we on the high road. And Thank you for listening.
0: Robert left this world in 1995, but I know firsthand that he continues his research on the other side on levels that we cannot comprehend with our physical world sciences. This has been also validated by other colleagues through their own personal experiences and observations. Oh, and uh, Bob, I know how significant radio was in your life. So if by chance you have a way of tuning in to Jackalope Radio from your heavenly lab, thank you for all that you have done and continue to do to help humanity on this journey through the multiverse. I am honored to be even a small part of your organization and life's work. In next week's show, I am going to give you a guided tour of the Monroe Institute and the technology they offer. I will also talk with you about the cutting-edge nature of my own research with the Institute. Also next week, I'm going to be putting up the first giveaway prize that I spoke to you about in previous shows. It'll be a 5,000-year-old bog oak talisman that's been blessed and charged by the Archdruid of Ireland himself up on Tara Hill. This talisman is worth uh, retail approximately $200.00 and uh, it's yours for free if you happen to be the lucky one whose uh, email address is randomly drawn by a random program that I'm using. In order to be eligible for this product you will need to send me your email address so uh, be sure to email me and uh, you can email me for any reason to say hi, to ask questions, uh, to say you like the show or you think it sucks, it's up to you. Uh, but. Also, any suggestions you have or if you just want to be added you know, to the, uh, the drawing list, that's perfectly fine. You can reach me at Marcus at the com. Until then, this is Marcus Leader and you have been listening to the Shaman's Brew on Jackalope 105FM on the Jackalope Media network.